promises. Um, let me first mention before we read the text that we're going to be reading this morning would be the key verses, some of the key verses in John, verses that are worthy of your memorization. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you know that verse? One nine, one seven. One nine, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, in the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. 3.14, we do know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 4.4, 4, greater is He that is than he that is in the world. 5.13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's turn to the book of 1 John now, chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. And this is in the New International Version. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. Verse 6. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know we are the children of God and who are the children or who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Listen to what someone wrote to describe himself. I really like beer and drink too much of it. I yell at my kids way too much. I love beautiful women and admire them too closely and too often. I am crude blunt, and oftentimes my sense of humor is only funny to me. I am a control freak, can blame and be critical. I am cynical, can be grumpy, and more often than not, people annoy me. I constantly judge everyone. I come in contact with weird hair, ugly, geek, bad clothes, loud mouth, Bad parent. And those are just a sample of the kind of things that have crossed my mind walking through the airport this morning. Is that a brother in Christ? Is that you? Is that me? It is an important question sometimes, isn't it, for us to examine ourselves whether we're in the faith or not. Just for your information, this happened to be an essay that was written 
by a member of a solid evangelical church in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Uh, just read it recently. And um, he's a close friend of the pastor. I don't think there's any question about his conversion. A born-again brother in the Lord. Yet, being so transparent, I wonder what life is like on the inside with all of us. How open are we to ourselves? One thing that has struck me lately and more and more is the need to be confessional about ourselves, our sins. Even I as a believer, John says if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we can't say that we are sinless, although we sin less, we're not sin, we are sinless, but we don't, and we do sin less. But we still sin. Recently, uh, uh, my daughter has challenged, not challenged me, she's challenged herself to want to read through the Bible uh, with me. And, uh, or understand the whole Bible. She says, Dad, I want you to teach me the Bible. I go, wow. Uh, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, whoa, I've never took this challenge on with anybody. Uh, but, amen. You, you want to read through the Bible and go, yes, I want to go through the whole Bible. I want to understand it. I've been... I've been doused in the New Testament. I've been reading it over and over. And I, I, I want to understand the whole Bible. I says, great, we'll do it. So, we've been doing it now for a month or so. And, and, and we're in the book of Leviticus. She had to read the first 14 chapters of the book of Leviticus. I warned her in advance. I said, the first nine chapters is going to be offering of all the offerings. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the... This offering, all the law of the offerings are mentioned there. You're going to find it rather dry, but it's really rich. And you're going to have to give it some attention, get as much of it as you can out of it. And, I, and some people feel like maybe they should skip parts of the Bible because they're boring or dry. That would be like a parent who puts food on the table with expectation that the child of the home will eat what's on, the, on their plate. And that's what God has done, you could say. He has given us the Scriptures, the Word, with varieties of books on it. And when we say to God, well, I really don't want to have the book of Leviticus. I don't want to read the book of Ezekiel. I don't want to read Obadiah. The Lord says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of me and is profitable. When my wife cooked for our family, when our children were little, there was expectations that the child would eat everything on the plate. And if a child refused to eat the spinach, for instance, they were warned in advance, you'll get no dessert. you got to finish everything on your plate. And if you refuse to eat everything on your plate, not only will you not get dessert, guess what you're going to have for breakfast in the morning? The leftovers from supper the night before. Well, I think that happened maybe twice. They got the point. What's put there is for your benefit and for your good. Now, we were reasonable. If someone didn't like spinach, we might give them just a smidgen. But we wanted them to at least taste the things that we believe were good for them. And God has given us the whole of the Word. Now, when when we're reading here now the epistle of John, this is one of the many... Portions on the table for us. 
You know, we often recommend the Gospel of John, don't we, to people when they're first starting to read the Bible? Even, even if they're a little more advanced, too, we always say, get into the Gospel of John. It's sort of like we might consider it the meat. The, the, it's, it's the centerpiece of what's on the plate. That's the best of them all, at least for starters. But, you know, somehow we've ignored the epistle of 1 John. Why don't we recommend people to read John, the Gospel, and then John's first epistle... And maybe the second and third ones too, but at least John and then first John. Because you know how the Gospel of John ends in chapter 20, verse 31? What does John say he wrote it for? These are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Do you know why he wrote the first epistle of John? He says in 5.13, These things are written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the epistle of John was written, you could say, evangelistically, so that people would read it and say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in Him, I have life in His name. That's what John wanted his audience to gather from the reading of the epistle. Now John is writing to those who have received the gospel and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And to them, he says, I'm writing unto you so that you may know that you have eternal life. So John, you could say, the gospel of John was written so that they might believe. The first epistle of John was written for those who already have believed. Now, I'm going to ask you all a question, and I want you to tell me where this is found. Where is this found in the Bible? But to as many as received him, to them gave he authority to become the children of God, even to them that believe in his name. Where is that verse found? Where? John, the Gospel of John. That's right, chapter 1, verse 12. Let me give you another one. Go and sin no more. Jesus said this. Go and sin no more. What book? What book? The Gospel of John. Who was it said to? To who? To the adulterous woman and also to the one that was at the, uh, at the water waiting to go in. The water that was turbulent. And the first time he would go in, he would be cleansed when Jesus... He said, take up your bed and walk. He says, sin no more. Okay, let me give you another one. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. What book is that in? John again. Chapter 8, verse 31. How about in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We all know that one, I hope. John 1, 1. How about this one? Which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1.13 I know you know these things, but I want you to notice how in the Gospel of John, compared to the first epistle of John, and look at some of these parallels, which makes it indisputable that John, the author of the Gospel of John, is the same author of the epistle of 1 John. 
that example that I gave you about born of God is mentioned a number of different times. And this would take me a lot of time to go through all of these, and I'm not going to uh, give you all of them, but um, let, let me say a few other things too that I think you'll, you'll see some of the connections here between the Gospel of John and the Epistle of John. For instance, the word sin appears 27 times in the first epistle of John. The word world, God so loved the world. He's the Savior of the world. He's the light of the world. The word world in the first epistle of John appears 22 times. The word love, God loving the world, love it all over the place in the Gospel of John. In the first epistle of John, 26 times, and these are only five chapters, remember. The word life is 12 times. But the word that's the most prominent word in the first epistle of John is the word what? K-N-O-W. No. No. Thomas, I won't believe unless I can see him with my eyes. I'm doubtful that he's risen from the dead, even though the Lord appeared to the other apostles. And it says about that, I love that verse, and when they saw the Lord, they were glad because He showed them His hands and His feet, I believe it says, or side, I think it's feet. When the Lord showed them, I didn't realize, it dawned on me that the week before Jesus appeared to Thomas, who wasn't there on the occasion when Jesus met them in the upper room when all the doors were shut. Jesus revealed Himself to them and for their sakes He had to prove to them it's Me. And He showed them His hands and I wondered if they had thrust their fingers into His hands and thrust their fists into His side because the way the epistle of John begins by saying what? And we have seen and looked upon and we have handled of the word of life. What an experience John the author has in writing the epistle of First John. That ought to get your attention. No. Well, how did John else know Jesus? Yes, whom we have looked upon, whom we have seen, whom we have handled. Well, who, what, what, what's John specially known for in the Gospel of John? How would you characterize him? That disciple in whom Jesus loved. Loved. Something John did that was very unique. Didn't he lean on the bosom of the Lord Jesus? He touched him. He experienced him physically. John begins the Gospel of John. It says, And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld His glory. Wow, what experience John had. As a matter of fact, all the New Testament writers have experience with Jesus. Especially in the epistles, James and Jude, they were Jesus' half-brothers. They grew up with Him from childhood. Jesus, of course, would have been the firstborn, if you want to call it that, firstborn, and all the rest would have been younger than him. So, from their birth, they knew the Lord Jesus. Paul, he heard him on the road to Damascus, and he saw him with his own eyes. The Lord spoke to him. Peter said, we were with him in the holy mount. 
And we heard the voice from heaven, that is from the Father, saying, This is my beloved Son. And even the author of Hebrews says that the Word was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. Everything points back to Jesus. What the authors experienced in their knowledge and contact with Christ is something that they want to communicate to their readers. Now, John contains, first epistle John we're talking now, contains some hard things. We have the reference to the Antichrist. There's no other epistle. We have it in Revelation. I said, I suppose Second Thessalonians 2 could be added in there. But very clearly calling this person the Antichrist, or whoever that is, is found in first epistle of John. Chapter 5 talks about Jesus. The same came by water and blood. Not by water, but by water and blood. What does that mean? Or in 1 John chapter 5, we have reference to not praying for one who sins a sin unto death. Both things are not easy to uh, understand, uh, as we might think, possibly. Doubting Thomas. If you have any con- doubts about your salvation... This is the book to go to. If you need to have a Thomas reassurance, I want to know. I want to know. I want to know that He's risen. I want to know that He's my Savior. I want to know my sins are forgiven. This is the book to go to. Everybody's ears should be opened to the book of 1 John. Someone has stated that there are 11 ways in which a person can be mocked as a child of God. One would be, and I won't get all the references, keep His commandments. Two, walk as Christ walked. Three, loves the brethren. Four, doesn't love the world. Confesses the Son and receives Him. Six, practices righteousness. Seven, doesn't make a practice of sinning. We were reading that. Eight, possesses the Spirit of God. Nine, listen submissively to the apostolic word. Ten, believes that Jesus is the Christ. And eleven, overcomes the world. John had a burden that he wanted to pass on to his people. He says in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. It is so important that we are established in the faith. We need to be sure that we're standing on the solid rock and we have that foundation beneath us. We don't need to be shaken. And if we shake, remember the rock beneath you will shake with you. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Now, John has definite reasons why he writes this epistle. He says... Verse 414, that you might have fellowship with us. These things have we written unto you that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. In other words, John is saying, I want you to come on into the fold, brothers and sisters. I want you to enjoy what we're enjoying. Fellowship with the Father and with the Son. There's no higher or better communion than being united to the Father and to the Son in a communal way. 
Then he goes on to say these things I write unto you, that your joy may be full. The most joyous people on earth should be a Christian. Can you say amen? Should we not be the happiest people on earth? We have sad days, there's no doubt about it. But underneath it all, we've got blessings galore. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven and whose transgressions are gone. Praise the Lord. That's how we stand before the Lord. But John wants their joy to be full. I don't know how much joy you would classify your life to have as a Christian, but you might look at it this way. The Lord wants your cup to be overflowing. That's what the psalmist says. He anoints my head with oil. My cup runneth over. That's the joy that comes with being a believer. If you're seeking it in the world, you're not going to find it. The hymn writer said, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name from me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. He also goes on to say why he writes it. My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if anyone sins, praise God for this, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. We have an anchor for our soul. When we begin to sink, when we begin to sin, praise the Lord, we've got an advocate. He doesn't abandon us. He's not an unfaithful lawyer who will stick by your side if you're on his side. No, he's with us no matter what. Faithful is he that calls you who will also do it. He is a faithful Lord. He will not abandon us. He's not going to be a derelict. He will be there for us if anyone sins. Which is kind of interesting. This is why we have to compare what we read here. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. That's what Jesus said. Go and sin no more. said that twice in John chapter 5 and chapter 8. Maybe elsewhere too. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any others. But here in John, he says, My little children, I write unto you that you sin not. I, I want to say the same thing to you, brothers and sisters. I want to com- communicate to you so that you sin not. I want to say it to myself that I, want, that I sin not. But if we do sin, we can go to the Lord. Because He has cleansed us from all of our sins. The penalty of sin has been paid. But I need that restoring communion with the Lord. I think of sin as like clouds that come between me and the sunshine above it. Sin is like that. It interferes with the light. The the clouds are never going to fully darken the power of the sunlight that brings light into my life. But I can certainly dim it by sin in my life. And the only thing that can remove that would be a confession of sin to the Lord. That's what John is advocating, confessing our sins to the Lord. Going to Jesus as our advocate, and this is another reason why he wrote. Then he goes on to say, I've written unto you, because your sins are forgiven you. Now that's a past tense. That proves what I just said. These things are written unto you because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. That's an amen, brothers and sisters. Our sins are forgiven. Buried in the deepest sea, yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. Gone. 
forgiven by the Lord. He goes on to say, I have written unto you that because you have known Him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you because you have overcome the wicked run. I have, I have written unto you because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. I have written unto you as you have overcome the wicked one. I've written unto you, verse 21 of chapter 2, because you know the truth. I've written unto you concerning them which seduce you. I've written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. The Lord wants us to be without doubt if we're one of His. If you're not, may you have doubts galore. May you not rest on your past. I made a profession of faith at Camp Impact. I went forward at a church meeting. I raised my hand in a service. I signed the card. I, I, I broke down one day and I cried out to the Lord. Don't depend on that. Depend on totally the grace and mercy and love of God and have the Word of God as a reason for your knowledge of the Lord and assurance of salvation. Let me give you in the epistle here, as I gave you examples of the mocks of a Christian, let me give you in John the mocks of a non-believer, a non-Christian. One six, walk in darkness. They profess that they know God, but they're walking in darkness. When God is light, and in Him all who believe have light, and so if one claims to be the Lord's and walk in darkness, they're a liar. Secondly, 1 verse 8, You say you have no sin, or that you have not sinned. You make God a liar and you've deceived yourself. 8 and verse 10. 2 9, You hate your brother. Hate your brother, or brother and sister, really, is what it means. You, you, you hate believers. Now that's, something's got to be up right there. That one really sticks out. That's a big one in John. For those that are born of God, they love God. And for those that love God, they love those who are born of God. It goes with the turf. If you're converted and born of God, you're going to love everyone that's born of God. Because the, the God who birthed you, you haven't seen. But the one who you rub elbows with, them you have seen. And that's how you demonstrate the love of God in you is by the love that you have for your brethren. But if you hate your brother and you say that you're in light, you're a liar. And verse 15 even says you're a murderer. Strong language. A murderer. John does not mince words here. There's no sitting on the fence with John. You're either in the light or you're in darkness. You either have love or you have hate. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And on and on, these contrasts are highlighted in the Gospel of John. Excuse me, the Epistle of John. You love the world. That's the mark of a child of the world. Jesus said to those of His own family who weren't yet converted, He says, You are of the world, therefore the world loves you. But I testify against the world, and the world hates me. But you are of the world, and the world will love his own. You're more friendly and comfortable with people of the world because they think and act like you do. Whereas those that are born of God think and act like 
we who are born again act or should act and should think. 2.4 says that you don't keep His commandments. It's a mark of a non-believer. Are His commandments grievous to you? Are they burdensome? Are they difficult? Is it like, ah, no way am I going to do that? The Bible says for me to forgive my brother and sister, but no, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm going to hold it against them. Something's wrong there. You better, better check it out. Be sure that you're standing on the solid rock. If they were of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all, that they did not belong to us. Who's us? Us is the believing community who belong to Jesus Christ. For those that go out, now obviously we've got to be contextual here. I don't want to suggest if somebody leaves this church and they go off to wherever, that that means that they're an antichrist person. No, I don't want to say that. But if someone goes away from the body of the communion of all believers and wants nothing to do with the children of God who confess Jesus as Lord, then I would say that's an antichrist person. That's what John says. Read it for yourself. They're antichrist plural. Another mock of an unbeliever is that they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, 2.22. The one that we read in chapter 3 is practicing of sin. And let me just review that for a moment. No one, verse 9, it says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. John, you do not mince words, is right. If you go on, the English Standard Version says, another translation says, if you practice sin, there's a difference between committing and practicing sin. Practice implies customary, something that's sort of natural to your sinful nature that makes you comfortable in doing it. You're practicing it because that's what you are on the inside. A good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a bad tree brings forth bad fruit. So clearly put by the Lord Jesus. John reiterates that in some ways here when he says this. Practices sin. 4.5 They speak of the world because they are of the world. 4.8 Doesn't love. Doesn't know God. Doesn't love. Love is sort of a generic word, isn't it? And I think everybody has some degree of love for somebody besides some things that they love, but they love something about somebody in this world. Their mother, their father, their brother, sister, a family member, a cousin or whoever. I'm sure that's there. But what John is talking about is a love that comes from God. It's a supernatural love. Love that I never had before I got saved, that you have had before you were saved. This is the kind of love that we can be exhibiting. 1 John 5, 12, He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Do you realize that if you're not saved, you're a walking person? That's John's language. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Because the life that John is highlighting here is a life that's in Christ. 
You know, we think of life as just like after this world, the afterlife life of heaven and going to glory land. But the, the way the Bible oftentimes uses the word life, especially in John's writing, is that life is really an inward experience, understanding, enlightenment that comes from the Lord that has enlivened you, that has quickened you, that has given you a spirituality that you do not or could not ever have possessed in your unconverted, unregenerated days. So it's regeneration that... John is promoting here for the children of God when he talks about he that has the Son has life. You have regenerating power from God. The unconverted don't have the life. And then, which I think is a very important background to the epistle, is when John says about the ones who don't believe that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, that person is not of God and has not been born of God. Now, that's not such a common thought in our day when people would deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. I would say there's a very small minority of people, uh, at least in America, that have any kind of background at all with American Christianity, if you will, have some degree of understanding that Jesus was a real person. That's indisputable. We know that that can be factually proven from history outside of the Bible even, that He was an actual... But there were those in John's days, and apparently they might have been the false teachers that infiltrated the ranks that John is addressing. These are the real Antichrist people. They had come in, they sort of circulated within the fold, but then they pulled out and they said, no, He didn't come in the flesh. He was a phantom. That's why John begins his epistle by saying, whom we have handled, we have touched, we have seen. It's a physicalness about Jesus that we have come in contact with. He's a real person. And that is critical. When Jesus rose from the dead, not only did He say to His apostles and and to Thomas, you know, behold my hands and my side, but He also elsewhere says, touch me, feel me. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me, he offered himself physically to be grasped, thinking that might, he might, they might think that I'm just a spirit being of some sort, that I'm really an immaterial being that's appearing to be material, but I'm real. No, he says, this is me. The one that was crucified is the one that's risen from the dead, and I'm showing myself to you. Doubting Thomases. If you have any doubts, this is the book to go to. Underline the word no. 31 times the word no is in John. If anybody wants to know, God wants you to know where you stand with the Lord. It's almost as if the Lord is turning over the palms of His hands and saying, it's me. Do you see this? Do you believe this? You want to know this? Here it is. That's vital. The expression born of God appears in 229, 39, 47, 51, 518. That's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 times. John's gospel begins by saying those who received him, received him, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Of God. That's the new birth. It comes from him, not from me, not from your mother. It wasn't natural. It wasn't of blood. You didn't become a child of God because of your will or the will of anyone else's 
imposed upon you. It was of God. I wasn't talked into this. When my wife was first converted, she was in the nightclub business singing and quite popular and, and doing great. And her father was very proud of her. And he was looking for her to go up to the top, so to speak. But when the Lord saved her, guess who becomes first now in her life? The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. No more the nightclub scene. That's got to end. I've found a sweeter story. I've found a truer gain. I've got the best of the best. If I'm going to sing, I'm going to sing for the Lord. Hallelujah to that name. Well, anyway, her dad was very troubled and thought, oh, Gary forced you into that. He was mad at me for months thinking that I was the one that sort of was dragging her along with me because I got saved first and then I told her the gospel and the Lord saved her next and, and he thought she was just following me. If she was, shame on her and she would not be able to endure to this point by the grace of God. It has to be something that comes from Him and not from us. But those that are not the Lord's are described in this epistle as murderers, liars, antichrists, deceivers, and in darkness. Whereas we, we are described as the ones who have an anointing. We abide in Him and we're born of God. That's why we can have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in the world. If the Lord's going to reject me, he have to reject His Son. Because the Bible tells you and I that we are accepted in the Beloved. I'm not standing the Lord before the Lord God Almighty on my own merits. I'm standing there upon the merits of another. It's not me, it's Christ that died for me. He's the sin bearer. He's the one that cleansed me and made me right in the sight of a holy God. Therefore, we can have boldness in the day of judgment. And perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. If you're not saved, you should be tormented. If you are a doubting Thomas and maybe have not seen for yourselves the hands, the marks in his body, and understood that they were for you on the cross, Lord, have mercy upon you. Spurgeon says, If any man is not sure that he is in Christ, he ought not, he ought not to be at ease for one moment until he is sure. Dear friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition, you have no right to be at ease. And I pray you may never be so. This is a matter too important to be left undecided. Full assurance, though, is not essential to salvation. Maybe you're not sure if you're saved. That doesn't mean you're not saved. I think every one of us, to some degree, and Calvin said this, that there's a degree of unbelief in everyone who's a believer even. So, don't let your... in those times of unbelief or lack of assurance be a reason for you to doubt your salvation, it may actually be a reason for you to be assured of your salvation. Because if you didn't care that you were saved, woe unto you. But if you do have a concern about that, that may be a sure indicator that you are the Lord's. Full assurance is not essential to salvation, he says, but it is essential to satisfaction. Don't you want to have that satisfaction, that peace, that assurance that you belong to Christ? That's what John wrote for. May you get it. May you get it at once. May you never be satisfied to live without it, Spurgeon says. 
If you do not know that you are saved, how dare you go to sleep tonight? Hmm. I hope church is more than just church. I hope church is really the place where you come to meet the living and the true God and that this book expresses its power, touches your life, changes your heart, and makes you stand in the presence of Almighty God. It just strips you naked and makes you say, I stand before the Almighty. My God's Spirit bring you there for this assurance. I don't think I could render this body of people a a better service, and John certainly couldn't either, than to write those who were claiming to be children of God. I want you to know for sure, because of the peace, tranquility, the serenity that will bring to your heart. How can we get that? Go back to the cross, brothers and sisters, like we did this morning. Stand by the cross of Calvary. Behold the Lamb. And ask yourself, were those sufferings my sufferings? Jesus, did you die in my place? Was my adultery, my fornication, my lying, my stealing, my cheating, all that I did, was it borne by you at the cross? I hope you can say, yes, it was for me. He bore my sins on Calvary to pay a debt that I could never pay so that we can have peace with God. Let's close in prayer.